The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Revelation chapter 4, the book of Revelation chapter 4. We're going to take a trip together to heaven. Revelation chapter 4. John speaking says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This, can you imagine that moment? He sees a door, and he knows by virtue of a vision that he is looking into heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like uh, the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was, was, was like jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne and an emerald, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all these things. And because of your glory, because of your will, they existed and were created. In 1900, the monument of Abraham Lincoln's tomb had to be completely torn down and rebuilt. Construction of the present tomb, I've been there and I've seen it, Uh, took about 15 months and during that time Lincoln's coffin was actually laid in a temporary grave a few yards from where it is now. In late August of 1901, Abraham Lincoln's body was was moved to its new resting place and a month later after he had been buried, Robert Lincoln, his son, visited the tomb and decided that things needed to be changed yet again. A little background. In 1876, uh, there are a group of thieves who had failed in an attempt to exhume and, and steal Mr. Lincoln's corpse because they wanted to hold it ransom and believe that the American government would, would pay any price to get it back. Robert didn't want the repeat of that possibility, so this time the coffin will be buried in a huge cage 10 feet deep and then encased in a solid wall and rock of concrete. Both the cage and the coffin would be hardened forever in a solid block of rock. 
Robert's idea, by the way, for this had come from the burial procedure employed by George Pullman. He was the inventor of the Pullman sleeping car. And finally, on September 26, 1901, everything was ready for him to be buried. Well, you can imagine there was a little bit of anxiety about this because of the permanency of such a burial. Huge discussion arose among the people present as to whether the coffin should be opened and examined or not. Some people argued that the remains should be identified due to the rumors that the, uh, Mr. Lincoln was not actually in that box. And you can imagine if they couldn't confirm that, then thieves could still, even if they didn't have the body, demand a ransom from the government. In the end, after a long debate and discussion, heated tempers, it was decided to open the coffin. Two plumbers, Leon P. Hopkins and his nephew, Charles L. Wiley, were called upon for this task. They chiseled open an oblong piece on the top of the lead-lined coffin, and the piece that these two men cut out was exactly over the corpse's head and shoulders. Reporters said when the casket was opened, quote, a harsh and choking smell arose. And then... 23 people, including his son, walked over and peered down. The report was that Mr. Lincoln's features were entirely still recognizable. His face had that same melancholy expression. His black chin whiskers whiskers hadn't changed at all. And the wart on his cheek and the coarse black hair were obviously Mr. Lincoln's. The biggest change, they reported, was that the eyebrows had vanished. The president was wearing his same Brooks Brothers suit he wore at his second second inauguration, but it was covered entirely with yellow mold. All 23 people were unanimous in their agreement that the remains were indeed those of Abraham Lincoln. After viewing the body, the oblong piece was then soldered back into place. The coffin was lowered into the cage, and then 4,000 pounds of cement were poured down, covering the cage and the casket. And for various reasons, by the way, you might uh, be interested to know that his remains had been moved 17 times since his original burial. But that's for another story. They would be removed no more. Mr. Lincoln now lies 10 feet beneath the floor of his tomb, which is visited every year by more than a million people. You say, why, why, why tell us about that? It's for me more than you. Because as I told you what happened, the silence in this room and the anxiety to know what was seen and what happened is really, really interesting. You know why? We, we want to know what happens after death, whether it's physical or spiritual. What? We have an insatiable curiosity about what happens after death. Even though we are supposed to live by faith, God has actually graciously given us a vision and sight as to what will happen after death. And that's what we find here in Revelation chapter 4. It's the church's great privilege, it's the church's great calling to inform the world that death has been conquered, that there's no longer any reason to fear the grave, that we're not a corpse that will decompose. We are souls that temporarily house bodies, not bodies that just happen to have souls. Now, the scene in Revelation 4 is remarkable. It's It's intended to set up, by the way, chapter 5. Chapter 4 is about the worship of the worth of God the Father, the Creator, His holiness, His majesty, His honor, sovereignty, eternality, all make Him utterly unapproachable. And yet, He has a scroll in His hands that He will now give in chapter 5 to the Lamb of God who will also sit on the throne. Now, just a little aside that, that has caused no amount of consternation in my own house we, uh, uh, I remember my oldest son, Luke, was, um, was driving one time, I was driving with him uh, in a, a street called The Old Road in, in Santa Clarita. We were driving, and he was young, probably um, 10 or so at the time, and he says, Dad, when you think of heaven, how do you think of God? 
And before I could answer, he said, what I mean is he's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So when you think of heaven, which one do you think about? It's a good question. I don't think I'd ever thought about that before. And so I began theologizing and talking out loud. I have multiple years of advanced theological studies. I have a terminal degree in preaching and theology. I should know the answer to this question. So I began talking. I said, well, that's interesting because when you get to Isaiah chapter 6, you have Isaiah who has a vision of heaven and he sees God on the throne. And so I think that's probably God the Father and that's kind of what we should think about. But then again, and I'm I'm saying this out loud to Luke, I said, "But, but then again, in John 12, Jesus says the one sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6 was me. And yet, when you get to Revelation 4, God the Father seems to be on the throne with the same phenomenon happening around him. And Jesus the Son is in chapter 5. And I, you might want to go ask your mom. <laughs> that wonderful confusion, I think, is a blessing from God. He's one. If we are not confused and the Trinity is not interlinked to such a degree that we can't separate it, then we have a wrong view of God. We have, we have three gods, not one. It's one in three and three in one. It should be no surprise. This chapter, and particularly verse 8, lays at the foundation of the rest of the book of Revelation and the worthiness of the Lamb because the God the Father on the throne in chapter 4 is the one who gives the scroll, the, the title deed of the earth to the Lamb in chapter 5, and then from there on it's about the Lamb. This chapter, and particularly verse 8, I think, are at the heart of true and genuine worship. Not only for John in that day, but for you and me today. Worship in Revelation in Revelation begins here in chapter 4, verse 8, with the adoration of God's being. Now, we usually use the word adore for babies and for little cute things. It's adorable. But if you look at the dictionary, something that's adorable is worthy of admiration. Something which we adore is something that's adore. Able. And God is, in a real sense, adorable. Now, any passage that describes a face-to-face encounter with the holy living God is going to be profound, and it's going to be overwhelming. And I want to tell you from the very beginning, this is, we are in the deep end of the pool. No floaties, no lifesavers, and we are likely to sink, and that's called worship. This week, I was speaking to a friend of mine. Uh, John Anderson, he lives in Florida, who's going to Israel for the first time. And so he knew I'd been a couple times, and he began pounding me with questions about how to better enjoy that experience, um, because I had been and he hadn't. What's the, what your favorite place? What did you do that, was, that, was, that you would change? How much did you pack? Did you do backpack, big backpack, little, little backpack, uh, big Bible, little Bible, computer, iPad? He asked me, okay, how about the southern steps in Jerusalem? What did you like about Galilee? Did you go down to Elan? What... I couldn't even get answers because he had so many questions. That's what John does for us. Don't you want to know what it's like when our faith becomes sight? What will that place be like? John says, I want to give you a peek to know that. Now, just for a moment, you don't need to turn there, but this is an incredibly interesting passage. When you compare John and Paul... Paul also was given a view of heaven, an exact vision of heaven. In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he says, Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable, but I will go on uh, to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he, doesn't even talk, he talks about himself in the third person. I know a man who 14 years ago, whether the body or I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was this a vision or was I really there? It was indistinguishable. Was caught up in a paradise, heaven, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. That's himself. But not on my behalf will I boast, except in regard to my weakness. For if I do not wish to boast, I'll, uh, will I, not be, I will not be foolish I'll be speaking the truth by for a refrain. You're going, what is he talking about? He tells us in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, God, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. 
Paul was able to see what John saw, and the Lord said, you cannot tell anybody. Why? Because he knew. I mean, can you imagine? Can anybody beat that, 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 uh, that conversation after church? How was your week? Uh, well, it was good. I went here and I went there. How was your week? Your week? Well, it was interesting. I went to heaven. Been there before. I've seen it. I know what the geography looks like. And so God said, you cannot speak of it because you'll begin to boast. Why does John get to see it and tell us? Because he's on Patmos. Who's he going to tell? He's going to get in the cave and say, oh, I went to heaven. No, one, no one's there to even care. But he's able to write it. And he could never glory in this. Paul was able to glory in it. So John is able to tell us what Paul never could. Now, he sees a vision. He finds himself in a vision. A vision in the Bible is a really curious phenomenon. It's more than a dream, but less than a real experience. And you can even hear Paul saying, was I there? Was I not? Was it real? Was it a vision? John has that same phenomenon going on here. The problem of this passage is the simple task that John is given to describe the indescribable. I mean, get a, get a three-year-old and say, I want to teach you what oxygen is. What is, what is this? What you breathe? Well, can I see it? Well, that's what John's having here. You can see the language. It was, it was kind of like, it was, it was something like, it was like a sea of glass. He doesn't even have the language. There are, there are not vocabulary words to match what he's seeing in this text. Daniel saw a vision of God surrounded by a river of fire. John in Revelation 1 saw the, risen of the, the vision of the risen Christ and reported that he was brighter than the sun. To look at Christ was to look into the sun. Ezekiel caught a vision of God and he said he was like a human figure that was glowing in sapphire. And now in Revelation 4, John has another vision of God. And this vision must have fried all his spiritual senses. Where do you go after this? What I want to isolate is verse 8. Just this one verse very simply. In the middle of this vision, he sees these four living creatures, and he says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease. They're always perpetually in, in the, in the um, action of saying, yelling, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now, a little background. That text should sound very familiar from Isaiah chapter 6, right? Um, we'll come back to that in a moment. Who are these four living creatures? I, it was very interesting to read commentaries on this. You talk about some kind of uh, fantasy land, uh, J.R. Tolkien kind of, of writing when people were describing what this is and what it's not. Can I just tell you at the end, it's what John saw. Without any interpretation, no footnotes, no writers. This is just what he saw. It's what God revealed about these creatures around the throne. But we can surmise a few things. It's probably the same seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6 since what they say is exactly the same as what was said in chapter 6. Furthermore, they're physically the same as the angelic creatures of Isaiah 6. These are special angelic creatures who have the responsibility that differ from other creatures. When you see angels elsewhere in the Bible, they look like men, not these. Probably more likely the four living creatures of Ezekiel one, um, five to 28, although there's four wings there, there's six wings in Isaiah and, and here. Look at their unique features in verses six to eight. They represent very interesting uh, dimensions of God's creation. Like the elders, they are heavenly creatures of the highest order involved with the worship and government of God. They're covering their eyes. With two of their wings, they're covering their eyes. Isn't this interesting? They're looking and saying and covering and cowering. It gives the impression of the exceeding knowledge of God. Their faces, a lion, an ox, a man, a flying eagle, suggest Qualities that belong to God, such as royal power, strength, spirituality, swiftness of action. And each of those creatures mentioned is the chief of its species. 
Together they embody a reflection of God's nature as to the fullness of life and power that he's given to this planet. Six wings, just like Isaiah 6-2, gives the impression of unlimited mobility in fulfilling God's commands. They can take flight, they can move up, down, three-dimensionally, every way possible. They're hovering around the throne. These four living creatures appear throughout the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 6, verse 8, verse 14, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 19. These creatures keep popping back. That's just a snapshot of who they are. But I think too many people get caught up on what these creatures are about rather than what these creatures are doing. The accent here is what they're doing and what they're saying, not what they're like and what their wings may mean. What I want to introduce to you maybe is is a new word. It's not a word. I made it up. It's just one that ministers to me. And that's the idea of extentology. Extentology. And what I mean by that is this shows the extent of what God is like in some categories. God is not just one way. He has an extent of being that way. And this shows us how massive God is in different categories of his attributes. Let's break this down real simple in verse 8 on three ways to prepare for the experience of heaven. Three ways to prepare for the experience of heaven or using what what, uh, Phil was saying uh, last night and this morning is three ways to increase your faith that one day will be sight. Three ways to prepare for the experience of heaven. Of heaven. Number one, here's back to our word. We need to adore the extent of God's holiness. Not just his holiness, but how holy he is, the extent of it. Adore the extent of God's holiness. In verse 8. Holy, holy, holy. Why does it say holy, holy, holy? Someone says, Well, that's how the song goes. Well, <laughs> yes. It's an echo of Isaiah 6. But here's the deal. This is, this is my, one of my favorite understandings of the timeline of Scripture. If you rewind the tape to Isaiah 6 and you see these creatures surrounding and hovering around the throne saying, holy, 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 and you come now to Revelation chapter 4, it has been 850 years. See, so what? You think it's fair to assume that in almost a millennium, these creatures have not wearied in saying the same thing. Can you have say obsessive, compulsive order, not disorder? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Wow, he's holy, holy, holy. Everywhere they go with these wings going above and below and in front of and behind the throne, they keep seeing God. And their only response is, holy, 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 every angle solicits the same response for almost a thousand years. Do you think it's fair to assume that they are right now in God's presence, ignorant of us, not caring about what we're doing, and looking at God and scratching their heads, flapping their wings and saying, holy, 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 no, come here, holy, 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 every angle, he's thrice holy. Now, the foundation of God's essence is his holiness. Most theologians would say it's the crown jewel of his attributes, that every other attribute flows out of his holiness. I think it's a fair assumption. There are some radical examples of God's passion for his holiness in the scriptures. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu, their first day on the job? They're incinerated for offering strange fire, that which God did not command them. And then we find the reason. It wasn't the, the, the offering of strange fire was just consequential to the real issue, which is said in, in, in the Leviticus 10. Those who come near me, I will be treated as what? Holy. They didn't, and it cost them their lives. Poor Ezra. Poor Ezra. One of the strangest stories in the Bible. 2 Samuel 6 they're moving the, uh, uh, the ark from Kiriath-Jerim up to Jerusalem. And, and Uzzah's there, is excited. The ark's going home. And the ark's on the back of the ark of the covenant. on the back of this cart. The cart hits a rut. The ark is sliding off. And Uzzah 
out of protection of God's holiness, out of protection of his, of his dignity, he stops the ark from falling off the cart and dies for it. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this text. It's the best explanation I've ever seen. He says, he underestimated God's holiness, holiness in that Uzzah had wrongly determined that his sinful hand was better than inert dirt. It's a great insight, isn't it? It falls off like it's dirty. That's different than being sinfully defiled. God's passionate about his holiness. Remember, David gets upset about that. God, what are you doing? Acts chapter 5, lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira, dead. God is serious about his holiness. Absolutely separated from anything defiling or contrary to his character, he cannot sustain unholiness. It shows how separated he is from us. Isn't it interesting? Holiness is how separate God is from us, but we're told in 1 Peter, as an echo of Leviticus chapter 20, be holy as God is holy. So we're to be what we can never be without God who does that in us and through us, but that's another sermon. By the way, Peter identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God in John 6, 69. Revelation 15, 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone, you alone are holy. When God's holiness is encountered, worship is the result. Worship or judgment is really just two consequences. 1 Samuel 2, 2, Hannah decried, uh, declared, there's no one holy like the Lord because he alone is holy and majestic holiness, Exodus 15 says. And remember Isaiah's response in this same phenomenon? He, he experiences the holiness of God and it's interesting that he, he says I'm sinful, but remember the articulation, the, the, the target of his sinfulness? He says, I am a man among sinful people and I'm a man of unclean what? Lips. Why would he say that? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the angel goes over and takes symbolically tongs and coals from the altar and sanctifies and makes holy his tongue. The roots go back, obviously, to the book of Leviticus. Peter picks up on that, telling us to be the same way. So why does it say holy three times? I... Uh, I, I was taught when I was young because of the Trinity. Who, who would argue with that? I'm okay saying Jesus is holy. The Spirit is obviously holy, the Holy Spirit. And God the Father is holy. I'm okay with that. But I'm not sure that's what Isaiah or uh, John uh, or these angels are saying. I think they're saying it in the Hebrew sense that it's three exclamation points. God is a lot of things, but it never does it say he is merciful, 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 gracious, 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 good, 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 wrathful, wrathful, wrathful. It only says he's holy in a thrice way to put an accent on the fact of the extent of that attribute. Repetition for the sake of emphasis and distancing his unholy creation from his holiness. We should think more about holiness. So there are some men who can help us. A.W. Tozer, I hope you love what he writes. He says, we cannot grasp, it's interesting, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of something or someone very pure then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing of the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible. And unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power. He may admire God's wisdom. But his holiness man cannot even imagine. My historical hero Jonathan Edwards. A true love for, God's, for, love for God must begin with a delight in his holiness. And not with a delight in any other attribute. For no other attribute is truly lovely without God's holiness. And then my favorite quote I've ever read about God's holiness is A.W. Pink. And ineffable, that means unspeakably, an unspeakable, unspeakably holy God who has the utmost abhorrence of all sin? Ha! 
This kind of God was never invented by any of Adam's fallen descendants. Isn't that good? Can you imagine that you're sitting around, you're, you're thinking of Greek gods or Egyptian gods or, or Roman gods. They all have flaws, they all have issues. Who sits around at a board table and says, let's create a God who is sinless and holy and who hates sin and unholiness, which is us? Nobody invents that kind of God. Can I give you one more quote? What are you going to say? No. Puritan Thomas Scott, one of my favorite Scottish Puritans, he said this, leave out the holy character of God, the holy excellence of his law, the holy condemnation to which transgressors are doomed, the holy loveliness of the, of the Savior's character, the holy nature of redemption, the holy tendency of Christ's doctrine, and the holy tempers and conduct of all true believers, then dress up a scheme of religion of this unholy sort. Represent mankind in a pitiful condition rather than, rather, uh, though um, uh, uh, misfortunate to the crime. Speak much of Christ's bleeding love of them, his agonies of the garden on the cross and the cross without showing them the need or the nature of satisfaction for sin. Speak of his present glory and of his compassion for poor sinners, of the freeness with which he dispenses his pardons, of the privileges which believers here enjoy, of the happiness and glory revealed to them thereafter. Clog this with nothing about regeneration or sanctification or represent holiness as somewhat else than conformity to the holy character of God and you make up a believable and a plausible gospel calculated to humor the pride, soothe the conscience, engage the hearts, and raise the affections of natural men who love nobody but themselves. He's right. What we see in every single, and I, I uh, look forward to talking to Phil tomorrow night in our Q&A about this. Every single aberration of theology can be straight line traced back a, to a disregard for his holiness. So do you adore the extent of God's holiness? I mean, right now, I just see these angels. We're doing this. They're going, holy, holy, holy. Go ahead, Holland. But we're looking at God. Holy, holy, holy. They just said it again. They said it again. They said it again. They don't stop. They don't stop. Do we ever start? How do you prepare for the experience of heaven? You're going to be doing that with them. The elders did it with them. We will do it with them in the future. We should practice for heaven right now by adoring how holy he is, the extent of God's holiness. Number two, second way to prepare for the experience of heaven Adore the extent of God's sovereignty. Adore the extent of God's sovereignty. Not just that he's sovereign, but how sovereign he is. It's a real simple point. The second phrase, the Lord God, the Almighty. It's a compound name of God. It emphasizes his sovereignty and his omnipotence. This is the Old Testament hinge because those are descriptions only given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Genesis 17, 1, God identifies himself to Abraham as the Almighty One. And the little phrase, the Lord God, is the same as saying Yahweh Elohim in the Old Testament. God, the personal God, God, the creator God. It would have been a flashpoint for the readers who uh, would see that as a clear designation that the God on the throne is the Old Testament God. As such, he is certainly almighty. Almighty. Psalm 115, verse 3. Is there any clearer verse in the Bible than Psalm 115, verse 3? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. You, you uh, exalt yourself as head over everything. Now, remember this context is in a throne room. Who sits on the throne in a throne room? The king. Psalm 93, Psalm 97, Psalm 99 all connect God's holiness with his sovereignty, with his rule over creation, over people in the world. 
Do we bow to God as our king? This is lordship salvation. He's the Lord God, the Old Testament God, the Almighty, the one who has all might, all power, who is all-knowing, all-seeing. You don't make God king of your life. You submit to God as king. We can't put God on the throne. I grew up with a, a, a rather unfortunate illustration some of you may have as well. It was, the, it was the follow-up to the four spiritual laws. It was basically four ways to grow in Christ. And just said, you know, there's a natural man, a spiritual man, and it had all these little diagrams. And one of the diagrams was the possibility that you're sitting on the throne and God's off the throne. Um, not possible. Excuse me, God, would you get off? You, you just said, I'm going to sit on the throne of, of your rule right now. I'm going to be the king. Not possible. Do we adore Worship, investigate, study the extent of God's sovereignty. Not just that he's sovereign, but how sovereign he is. We've been talking about this on Sunday mornings in Romans. and I love the, the, the title of that little junior high book, devotional, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? Do you believe that God is sovereign over everything? Even traffic. I've told Mission Row before, I feel so sorry for the rest of you. God's effort, his love for my sanctification is so extreme that he, he uses all of you in traffic to sanctify me. All the people in Kansas City are used to sanctify my heart. And I appreciate you being willing to be a part of that. My sweet wife, Kim, who is on the front row, who I'm not looking at right now. She has this thing, because I'm, I'm my father's son. Phil, we were talking about this. I hate being late. My dad was a drill sergeant in the Marine, car, Marine Corps. You know, early is on time. A leader who shows up on time, son, is late. I remember it just, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. My shoes are signed. So, um, so if I know I'm going to be like 10 minutes late, it bothers me 30 minutes ahead of time. And she says, don't let it bother you. 30 minutes ahead of time, just the last 10 minutes. You're not late yet. Like, no, no, no. I want to enjoy the full succulent devotion to my worry. <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a theology of God where he's on the throne of not only heaven and earth, but on the throne of your life? Or when trials come, do you raise your fist at God and say, why have you forgotten me? Are you over in Afghanistan or in India and you've forgotten me here? You want to get ready for heaven? Worship the sovereignty of God. We're going to be doing it forever. Number three, adore the extent of God's holiness. Adore the extent of God's sovereignty. Number three, adore the extent of God's eternality. Let me just tell you at the beginning, this is the shortest one. I don't have a shelf I don't have a category. I don't have brain cells for this one. Adore the extent of God's eternality. Who was, who is, and who is to come. John's already alluded to this reality in, in, in Revelation 1.14, though the word order is a little different. Psalm 90, before the mountains were born, you or you gave birth to the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting. Eternity backwards, you were there. And you are God. Why is it important that God is eternal? If you really have a slight glimpse at the eternality of God, it will change your life. A.W. Pink, in his classic book on the attributes of God, says this. Just buckle up the seatbelt, okay? This is, this is incredible. There was a time, he says, if time could be called that, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. Think about this. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested, no earth to engage his attention, no angels to hymn his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing and no one but God. And that, not for a day, not for a year, not for an age, but from everlasting to everlasting. 
During a past eternity, God was all alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had any human beings been necessary to him in any, any way, they also would have been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them, when he did, added nothing to God essentially. He changes not, therefore his essential glory can be neither augmented nor diminished. So if, if you're like me, I'm, I, think, I think I'm okay with thinking about eternity from now going in the future. I'm okay with that. I'm here, I'm going to be there forever. I'm okay. We'll never stop. I'm over there. Where it melts down is that way, right? <laughs> he always was. And just when you think, yeah, he was there, no, he was, he was there too. And, and then too. There wasn't even a then or a there then. He's always been, always, forever, everlastingly, never with a beginning. I feel like the wicked witch, I'm melting. I mean, how, how is that possibly you are, we don't have a brain for that category. But what does that tell you? Is there anything in your life that God hasn't seen? Has he ever elbowed the angels? So, wow, I've never seen that before. Have you seen this? We've got to help here. He's seen it all. He's also seen the future. And he's there. He was. He, that's, he's still there. He's outside of time. He is now with us. And he is there. Can I freak you out a little bit? In God's experience and in God's mind, believers are already with him in heaven in eternity. Let's close in prayer, right? I mean, what, what, we are already there in his. He sees the whole from the beginning. Doesn't that give you a deep breath of he can be trusted? He's sovereign, which means he's in control. He's seen it all, which means he's there. Seen everything from beginning to end. At every point right now from the beginning to the end, he knows how your life turns out and ends up. Isn't that interesting? He knows how we finish the race. No trial then should be engaged without this reality in mind. Just real quick, notice the totality of, of God's expression of his, of his um, uh, attributes here. These are each in triads. It's holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty was, is, is to come. When God speaks in triads, it speaks of completion. You see that all the way through the book of Revelation. Three of three means God is absolutely complete in the fullness of expression of his attributes. So where does that leave us? It, it should leave us in, in wonder and in worship where we just, we just say that's too much. Remember David in Psalm 139? Your, the thoughts of you are too wonderful for me. I can't even attain to it. I'm trying to put the ocean of God into the thimble of my brain and it just doesn't fit. Wonder and worship that's the conclusion. If you want to taste a slice of heaven, if you want your faith to know what its sight will be like, it's not so much about heaven, it's about the one on the throne. It's the exercise of contemplating God, thinking about God. Tozer says that the greatest thought the mind can ever entertain is of God. So, do we think about God? Now, here's the great challenge. You will think about God either with biblical data, which will lead you to worship and wonder, or you will think about God with extra-biblical, non-biblical data, which will lead you into error and despair. Yes, this is the read the Bible more sermon. That's where we find out what he's... This is not just a book of stories. This is not just a history book. This is God revealing himself, what he's like to us. If I were to write a book about my life, an autobiography, or one of my kids, or my wife, or one of my friends, 
I wouldn't write this. I would say, okay, you're born this time and you move through chronologically. God says, okay, in the beginning, here's the creation. Let me tell you about my interaction with humans for 66 books. In fact, you can break the entire Bible down into one 10-second sermon. God and man before the fall. God and man after the fall. God and man after the restoration. What's the biggest section of that? in our category, in the fall. He calls us to understand who he is and what he's like, and it makes a difference in our lives. The gospel isn't a plan, it's a person. The gospel is about all that we've just said about God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a representative of God. He wasn't just a prophet of God. Everything we know of God is in Jesus. You say, well, then why doesn't he look like this extentology? Because he humbled himself to become a man and set aside the use of some of his divine attributes to teach us what a man looks like in full dependence on God. We're called to submerge our minds in the scriptures so we get a taste of God that make us want to move ahead. Several years ago, I made a terrible mistake. I just finished a, um, our, uh, my, my, my terminal degree at Southern Seminary where, where Brett also studied. I finished, uh, I was in my last year, rather, and um, was doing our taxes and uh, made the worst mistake I've ever made on our taxes and got a massive return. Like, where was that money all year return? And uh, I, Kim had sacrificed so much to help me get through uh, that last two years of school. I said, what do you want to do? She said, you know, can we go to Hawaii? I was thinking, no, let's go to Alaska on a bear hunt. She didn't say. <laughs> so we did. So we set up with a friend. Grace Church was a travel agent. And for a year, we planned to go to Hawaii. We studied books about Hawaii. We got on the internet about Hawaii. We talked to people who've been to Hawaii. And when we went to Hawaii, we were ready. I mean, Kim landed with a notebook, okay? And, and she knew, she knew the, the lay of the land before we even landed. Here's the point. We enjoyed that week unbelievably. It was an unbelievable week. Had we not prepared for it, we wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. This life is preparation for heaven. We love it. We know it. We want to be there. We can't wait to spend time with them. You know what was the greatest part of Hawaii? It wasn't going snorkeling and, and almost dying of saltwater drowning. It wasn't. The best part of Hawaii was being with Kim. What we did, that's heaven. So are you looking forward to heaven so much that you're getting brochures? Studying the scriptures. Getting your mind ready. I mean, are you ready, as the Puritan says, that if your next step is in death and into heaven, you're so ready for heaven that you don't break stride? Are you ready? Are you ready to see the holy God who will meet us at the judgment seat of Christ? Are there sins for which we should repent? Or are we going to be exercising shame in our heart at his return? Is he holy and does it make a difference? Is he sovereign? Are you in despair? Have you really thought, I need to work life out because God is obviously not ruling in my situation. And do you have confidence that your God has been there, done that, seen that, and is already where you are tomorrow? That should give you a spiritual deep breath that faith will one day be sight but he gives us a glimpse of the sight to encourage our faith. Everything, everything, everything that I just said comes down to one question. Do you, will you believe that this is true? And if you don't, what do you bank your life on? Are you getting ready for heaven? Are you ready to see him? Are you like Paul? Remember that strange passage, odd passage, uncomfortable passage. Philippians 1, he says, he's arguing with himself. 
I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Christ. But ah, God probably wants me to minister to you. But I want to go to heaven. I want, okay, I'll probably stay for your sake. He has to talk himself into not going to heaven. You say, well, how would that have happened? Just go into the next town. They would have killed him. It would have been fine. pretty easy. He's arguing with himself about which is better, to stay or go. Have you ever gotten to the point where heaven was so real and such within your grasp, you wanted to be with Jesus so much that you said, I would rather be there than here? Or is our grip on this world so tight that the thought of even having one finger ripped away from its grasp gives us turmoil? It's going burn time resources effort should be spent investing now in what will last then why because of him because he is worthy and that's what this passage teaches us let me ask you to bow your heads if you will we've had a long day long morning great night two excellent expositions this morning before we leave here, just, just, just take 10 seconds, and you've had three sermons this morning. Can you grab just one thought that you think, I, I really need to wrestle with that issue? We're going to have a break for a few hours here, and commit to talk to someone about that point. Bill was talking about Jesus walking on the water, and Peter meeting him there, and then Peter not meeting him there, and Brett described the corporate dimension of our sanctifying responsibility to grow each other in Christ. John just said, are you ready for heaven? Here's the brochure. Is this where you want to be and who you want to be with? Now, Father, dismiss us in the afternoon with thoughts of you, worship of your greatness, We've studied a lot from your word today. What a blessing. What a privilege it is to be around your people and under your word for the better part of a day. You've instructed us, and now with that instruction, sanctify us. For your great glory, Lord, and for our good, we pray. Because of Jesus, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>